Last Sunday, we spoke to you on the importance of the book of Genesis. I'd like to go back to the book of Genesis this morning, but I'd like to do a comparison of Genesis and the book of Revelation, especially the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. I think we'll see a lot of similarities, but also some contrast by comparing these two books. The book of Genesis is a foundational book, as we stated last Sunday. It's the book on which all the other books of the Bible rest upon. The word Genesis means origin, it means beginning, and we find the beginning of everything that we really know about in life. It has its origin, the knowledge of it, the understanding of it, recorded for us in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, again, is the foundational book. I think Genesis chapter 1 is the foundational chapter. I think Genesis 1-1 is the foundational verse. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In Revelation 21-1, John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He says, For the first heaven and the first earth are passed away, and there is no more sea. Now, the new heaven and new earth, this is the third time it's mentioned to us in the Word of God. We find in Isaiah 65, verse 17, about seven to 800 years prior to the coming of Christ, where Isaiah spoke about a new heaven and a new earth. We read in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he says, Wherefore we look for new heavens and a new earth. By contrast, the first heaven and the first earth was created for the welfare and benefit of man. God created man on the sixth and final day of creation. And there's several reasons for that. But one is everything that man would need was prepared ahead of time. And God is a God of preparation. He couldn't have created man on day number two. He wouldn't be able to have lived on day number three or four or whatever. He prepared his environment. He prepared where he would be an inhabitant. And so the first heaven and the first earth was created for the existence of man and his descendants. And so for about 6,000 years, we've lived on this creation right here, a new heaven and, a, I mean, the heaven and the earth that's spoken of in Genesis 1 and 1. But John speaks about a, a new heaven and a new earth. Now, when Peter writes about this, he says, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now, in contrast to this earth that we live on, in this earth, is that would not describe this earth. Now, there is some righteousness in this earth, but this earth here is a combination of corruption and righteousness. But the new heaven and the new earth, uh, Peter speaks about as a place where righteousness dwells. It'll be complete, complete with righteousness, full of righteousness, all of righteousness. So that's a contrast to begin with between this earth that we're living on and when the Bible speaks about a new heaven and a new earth, I believe he's just simply given us um, an expression here that we find in the Word of God concerning heaven itself. There's a number of things in the Bible that have reference to heaven, such as when the Lord was on the cross. And the thief spoke to him, and he says, Lord, remember me. And the Lord said, This day shalt thou be with me in paradise. The word paradise there obviously has a reference to heaven itself. And that very day, the Lord and this thief was with him in a place called paradise. So we look for new heavens and new earth. We look for a place where he dwelleth righteousness, where we'll be with God 
And all the things of this world here will not be allowed to enter in there. In fact, one of the expressions you'll find in Revelation 21 and 22 is no more, no more, no more. When you read these two chapters, just pay attention to that. Now, in chapter 21, he goes on to say, And I saw a city, New Jerusalem, the holy city, come down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride for her husband. Now, when a bride is, prepares herself for a husband, she does the very best she can to make herself look as attractive as she can, uh, as pretty as she can, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of time and effort has gone into this particular moment. And this is what John is, is giving us a picture of here. What he's going to present to us is a thing of great beauty. I saw a city come down from God out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, the holy Jerusalem, the holy city, in contrast to the earthly city, Jerusalem. And she shall be as a bride prepared for her husband. Now this, uh, this chapter is going to give us a de some details about this city. And I want to talk about the city just a little bit to begin with this morning. You're going to find where John was given a golden reed to measure this city. Now this city was measured uh, as being about having a wall about 216 foot high and about 1,500 miles four square. It's mentioned in furlongs and cubics. A cubic was about 18 inches. And uh, we'll find that it was 144 cubics high the wall was, and translate that, it comes up to about 216 feet uh, as far as the height of this wall. And then the city is measured in furlongs. And uh, a furlong is about 600 feet. And we find when you do the math on this, that this city was about 1,500 miles square. The Bible tells us this city is four square. So think about a pyramid and a base with four equal sides to it. If you measure 1,500 miles from right here where we're at this morning, you would come pretty close to the, to the border of the state of Arizona. So just think of it like that. Now obviously, there's never been a city on this earth that's been this big. This is a big city. Again, from right here to the east border, of the state of Arizona. The walls again are 216 foot tall. Now John has the responsibility of taking a golden reed and measuring this city. This city has 12 foundations and the names of the 12 apostles are in these 12 foundations. Again there are 12 uh, foundations but there's also 12 walls and 12 gates. And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are in these walls and there's 12 angels keeping these gates. In this picture so far, I hope you see the perfection of this city. This city lies four square once again. I want you to see the perfection of this city. I want you to see everything has been prepared for this city. Everything is in order in this city. And God's always been a God of order and a God of great preparation. You'll see the walls of this city and the gates speak of that which is for protection. Nothing that is defiled, can ever enter in to this city. Uh, this city will be inhabited by people. It'll be inhabited by people that belong to God, whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world. So we got a city that is four square here, and the Bible says this city is a city of gold, and the streets of this city are of gold. Now on the inside of this city, you're going to find a river that's mentioned to us in Revelation 22.1. And I saw a river, a pure river of water, proceed from the throne of God, 
coming down. This river flows and it flows downward from heaven down here to this earth to furnish or supply this city. Then uh, listen to what else it says about the river. A pure river of water, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God. In the midst of it, on either side of it, was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, bore its fruit every month, and its leaves were for the healing of the nations. Now, we're, John is painting us a picture here. A picture is in contrast to what we read back here in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, especially the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now, before we go any further with, with the city here, uh, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. And we find where it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now, in this city over here, we're told twice there will be no darkness. Now, we're familiar with darkness here, right? We have nighttime and daytime. But there will be no darkness in the city that I'm talking about over here. I want you to see a contrast this morning between this world and that world. The world that we're accustomed to, the world we live in right here, with a, a world that we anticipate being in one day that's going to be quite different. All right? Now, the earth was without form and void, darkness upon the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, in 2 Corinthians 4 and 6, Paul refers to this. He writes it this way. He said, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath in this day shine in our hearts the light of the glory of Jesus Christ in our hearts. Now, Paul says God commanded the light to shine out of darkness, which tells me that there was no question, no doubt, that when God said, let there be light, there was going to be light. Now, this is not the light of the sun or the stars. That won't happen until day four of creation. God commanded the light. There's a difference in God commanding something and commandments. God gave us ten commandments, recorded Exodus chapter 20, didn't he? Are those commandments kept? We should try to keep those commandments. Every single day we should try to keep those ten commandments, but those commandments are broken every day. But when God commands something, then whatever he commands is going to take place. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. There could be no possibility that light was not going to shine. We find the Lord in that ship in Matthew chapter 8 in the first storm. He was in the ship in the Sea of Galilee and a great storm came up and Jesus was asleep and they woke him up and said, Lord, save us or we perish. And the Lord spoke to the storm. He said, peace be still. That was a command. God commanded for that storm to cease. He commanded for peace to exist. Was there any possibility that storm was not going to obey the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ? Any possibility whatsoever? You see, that's a picture of passive obedience. And that's what happens when God gives eternal life. When God borns one of the Spirit of God, God doesn't offer life. God has never offered life. There's not a verse in God's Word that says God has ever offered anybody eternal life. Not one verse. I asked you to find it for me. If you find it for me, I'll read it. Okay, but I don't have to worry about that. That's just not the way it is. Matthew, excuse me, John 5, 25, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, the hour is coming now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. When Jesus speaks eternal life, eternal life is given. It's not offered, it's given. And the person that receives eternal life is passive in receiving that life. Passive in that. Who God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the glory 
in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is quoting, obviously Paul believed the book of Genesis, obviously Paul believed the first chapter of Genesis, and God believed, when God said, Paul believed, when he said God, uh, when God said, let there be light, that there was light. But over here we're told in the city I'm talking about, there will be no darkness, because the light of God, the glory of God, and the light of the Lord Jesus Christ will be the light of this city. We find where the Lord divided the land from the sea. Revelation 21.1, where I quoted in the beginning a while ago, it says there shall be no more sea. And that means body of water. You know, uh, the water makes up about three-fourths of the earth's surface. For there will be no water, no sea from that regard in the city I'm talking about. Now, in the Bible, when you read about a sea, usually that sea symbolizes danger. It symbolizes uh, sometimes death and sorrow. A lot of things happen on the sea and have happened on the sea and historically speaking, right? Ships are destroyed. Ships are sunk. Lives uh, perish on the sea. In fact, those disciples thought they were going to perish. They said, Lord, save us or what? Or, or we perish. The sea meant difficulties. The sea meant trials. The sea meant tribulations. The sea meant da dangers and storms of life. But in this city, there will be no more sea. No more sea. Now, this city we were talking about is four square. It's a city of gold. All right? And the streets are of gold. Now, this is symbolic language, but what you, I want you to see the picture of this morning. See, God, uh, everything God does is a thing of beauty. When God created the heaven and the earth and the universe and all the galaxies and the sun, the moon, the stars and everything, this was absolutely gorgeous. If you think the sun and the moon and the stars are, are gorgeous now, you should have seen it and I should have seen it before man's fall. I don't even think that's in comparison to what it was like before man transgressed God's law and sin entered this world because sin entered into the world of God's creation and it was marred. But how beautiful the sun, again, a rising sun, a setting sun, the moon and the universe and all the stars that God made, how beautiful they are even now today. This city is a picture of God's permanence, the four square, the foundation. Now, foundations, generally speaking, are hid. But the foundations of the city are not hid. And they're garnished with very precious stones. When I go back and read in Genesis chapter 2, uh, where God planned a garden in Eden, you're going to find that there was gold and there's two precious stones mentioned. Over in Revelation chapter 21, this city is a city of gold, the streets are of gold. And far more than just two precious stones that's mentioned in Genesis. Over here, every single thing about the foundation of this city is clothed with precious stones. Gold, pearls, precious stones, a thing of great beauty that God has designed for his people here. Now, that river I was speaking about a while ago in the book of Genesis had four heads to it, and it flowed and it supplied the Garden of Eden. But over here in Revelation chapter 22, there's just one river. And it says, I saw the river of God. I saw a pure river proceeding down or coming down from the throne of God. That's where all purity originates, is it not? Uh, there's nothing but purity when it comes to God and everything associated with God. All right, apart from God, there is no purity, but notice some of the things that are pure in the sight of God. 
In Matthew 5, in verse 8, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When you study man and his nature, and man's depravity in the Word of God, you don't find man to be pure, you find him to be the opposite of that. The heart of man by nature is not pure. The heart of man by nature is described in Jeremiah 17, 9 like this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Is that a picture of a pure heart? I don't think so, right? The heart of man is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. That's not a picture of a pure heart. But God is speaking about somebody, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 8, that have pure hearts. How do they have pure hearts? When God borns his children of the Spirit of God, he takes out the hardened stony heart, gives it a heart of flesh. Man now has a corrupt nature still, but he's got an incorrupt nature. He's got a non-pure nature, but he's got a pure nature over here, and God gives him a pure heart. And here's the wonderful blessing here. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. That expression, pure heart, is used four or five times in the New Testament. We're told by the Apostle Peter to love one another with what? With a pure heart. With the heart that God has given unto you. God is the one that gives a pure heart. Proverbs 16.1, the preparation of the heart and the answer of God, uh, uh, man, uh, preparation of the heart and the answer of the tongue is all of the Lord. Here's something that God does again to the heart, you see. Now the word of God is pure, isn't it? Psalms 12, 6 and 7, for the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times, thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them this generation forever. The words I'm speaking to you from this morning, they're pure words. They came from the mouth of God. We believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture, and we believe in the divine preservation of Scripture. In the inspiration of Scripture, the words that God gave me and the pen down to write, they are pure words. Proverbs 30 and verse 5 says so again. That book of wisdom from, from Solomon the words of the Lord are pure words. Every word of God is pure. Every word, not some, but a pure. So when Paul tells Timothy to study, show himself approved, a workman need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, we notice you do not divide truth from error because there is no error. The Bible is not a combination of truth and error or where error is crept in down through the ages. Surely Almighty God is able to keep his word until he comes again pure without corruption without error creeping in through his providential care and his great power, surely he can do that. If he gave it originally in a way and a manner that's inspired and is pure, surely he's able to do it. That's what David says in Psalms 12, 6, 7. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Thou shalt preserve them. Man didn't preserve it. Man, God has preserved his words. So his words are pure. He gives a pure mind. In, the, uh, uh, in 2 Peter 3, 1, Paul says, The second epistle I write unto you that might stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. A pure mind? Well, what about what Paul said in Romans 8 and 6? He says, The carnal mind is enmity against God, not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. He's talking about the mind of the human nature of man. The carnal mind is enmity against God. But now Peter is writing somebody that's got a pure mind. He says, these things I'll write unto you, this second epistle we write unto you, to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Now, I want my pure mind to be stirred up, don't you? I don't want my carnal mind to be stirred up. That, that happens enough as it is without even trying. 
right? Every day we live, if we're not careful, we got a mind that can be stirred up in the wrong direction. But we want our pure minds to be stirred up. Where do we get a pure mind? Not by nature. <laughs> not by, from our parents. We got a human nature from our parents. We got the, and they got a human nature from their parents who traced it all the way back to Adam. But you got a pure mind. You got a pure mind. You got a pure heart. We have the pure word of God. One of the qualifications of a deacon is found in 1 Timothy 3, 9 is that he must with a pure conscience keep the mystery of the faith. A pure conscience. God's, I mean, God's word describes our conscience in many places being the defiled conscience. But there we find you can have a pure conscience. And we must keep the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. From a pure mind and a pure heart from the pure word of God. Religion. James 1, 26 and 27. If any man seemeth to be religious and brileth not his tongue. <laughs> Tongue's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> Tongue's the problem. I tell you, Facebook, you know, Facebook, whatever you want to call it, has caused more problems. I know it can be used in a good way, a positive way, and spread good information if we would just do it that way. But how much is put out there from an uncontrolled tongue? If any man seemeth to be religious and brileth not his tongue, his religion is vain. But pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father says this, to visit the fathers and the widows in their afflictions and keep itself unspotted from the world. There's a pure religion. I want to practice pure religion, don't you? <laughs> you know, and, and people say, you know, I just need something to do. Well, you know, James just gave us something to do right here. He says, get out and visit the fatherless and visit the widows in their afflictions. And on top of that, keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's a full-time job. This week, if you'll practice this, it'll keep you busy every day this week. <laughs> visit the fathers and the widows in their afflictions and keep yourself unspotted from the world. This world will spot you if you're not careful. So I just give an assignment to everybody. And I'll take it on myself as well, you see. So the river under consideration here that, that supplies everything God's people need in this city is a pure river of water, clear as crystal, and it proceeds from the throne of God. That's where everything that is pure, that's where it comes from. There is no other source for it. We go back here to the book of Genesis. Again, where God divided the land from the sea, we already mentioned that. And then God created all the lights, the sun and the moon and the stars for man's benefit and welfare. You know, people centuries ago were using, using this part of God's creation to help guide them as they were on the sea in ships, as they would follow certain stars, one thing and another. What did the, uh, what did the wise men follow when they came to see the Lord and Jesus Christ? They followed a star, did they not? But see, that's all for us right here. Over here in the city I'm talking about where there'll be no darkness, there'll be no need for the moon, be no need for the sun or the stars over here because Jesus Christ, who is light himself, not only he's life and he's also light. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can the Father except by me. In John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. And he walketh out to me, shall not walk in darkness, shall have the light 
of life. Jesus Christ is light personified. That's when God said, let there be light, that light just appeared because God is light, and he commanded that light to shine. But it's on the fourth day of creation that the stars and the sun and the moon are brought into existence. Look over here in Genesis chapter 3, we have an introduction of our adversary, the devil. He comes as a serpent. He's the most subtle of all the beasts of God's creation. We find here the devil coming on the scene. But you know what I see over here in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10? I see a place called everlasting fire. And I find where the devil and the false prophet and the beast, where they are put into this lake of fire, which shall torment them forever and forever and forever. You see him introduced in Genesis 3. You see the last thing you'll ever see about him over here in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. Isn't that a beautiful sight? Isn't it wonderful to know that there's a place for the devil? There's a place where the devil's going to be with the false prophet and, and the beast over here. He's going to be banished forever. We're introduction not only of the devil by way of a serpent, but we see so many things uh, the evil is brought into, into the picture. And we mentioned this last Sunday. Remember how he comes on the scene with a question. He comes to Eve and he says, Hath God said? Yes, God had said. But the implication is, why did he say it? Or did he really say what you said he said? <laughs> and Eve takes over and she says, Well, he, he said we could eat every tree in the Garden of Eden except one See, God caused every tree in the garden of Eden to grow, even the tree of, of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Pay attention to those two trees. And God placed man in this garden that he planted and told him to dress it and to keep it, and he could have every tree in that garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He said, in the day you eat thereof, something's going to happen. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, when the serpent talks to Eve, Eve repeats that, but she adds, takes away, and changes. She says, the Lord said we may eat of every tree in the Garden of Eden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and we should not eat of it, nor should we touch it. The Lord didn't say one thing about touching it. She added that. Lest we die, that's not what the Lord said. He says, thou shalt surely die, so she altered that. And then she didn't say, thou shalt surely die, so she eliminated that. So for 6,000 years, Satan has been the master of changing, adding, deleting, and altering God's Word. When you go to a Bible bookstore, you can have all kind of choices, if you want to, as to, to purchase something called a Bible. But before you do that, you need to know what the Bible is and what, where is the Bible. And I don't want to get sidetracked here this morning on, on this, but... Uh, the King James translation, without any question or doubt in my mind, represents the true word of God here in this life. You know where you'll find it in this day and age in a Bible bookstore? Hid back there. You know, you got to uh, ask for it, and they got to go around and dig for it just to find it. The devil doesn't want you to know the truth. The devil does not want you to have access to God's pure and true word. Remember uh, not too long ago how many uh, thousands of words I told you have been eliminated in the modern so-called versions, the NIV, the ESV, the New King James Version, 
thousands and thousands of words have been removed out of it. But anyway, Eve added to it, she altered it, and she took away from it. But what did the devil say? The devil says, thou shalt surely not die. That's the exact quotation of God except for the word not, N-O-T, he puts right in the middle of it. One word totally reversed everything that had been said. Thou shalt surely not die. Well, who's, who told the truth there, God or the devil? Well, I believe God did, didn't he? <laughs> Romans 5, 12, Wherefore, but one man sinned in the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Now, I mentioned last Sunday about the Lord speaking to Adam and to, the, and to Eve and to the serpent. And I mentioned how when he got to Eve, how Eve told the Lord that the serpent deceived her and beguiled her. You know, and so one of the sisters after church brought that up to my attention that she said, you need to say a little something else about that. And I said, what's that? In the book of 1 Timothy, you'll find where the apostle Paul said that while Eve was in the, in the transgression, Adam was not deceived. So I got it. <laughs> Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. He knew perfectly well what he was doing when he ate the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and transgressed God's law. He knew perfectly well what he did. And sin came into the world just like God said it would. And death came as a result of sin just like God said it would. And death passed upon all humanity just like God said that it would. And so the Lord does come walking in the cool of the day. And we find where, first of all, he addresses Adam. Adam put the blame on the woman. <laughs> he didn't address the woman. She put the blame on the serpent. They didn't dress the serpent. He said, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, upon all the beasts of the field, and upon thy belly, cursed art thou, the first time the word curse is used, cursed art thou, and thou shalt go upon thy belly, eating dust all the days of thy life. You know what I read over here in Revelation 22, about verse 4 or 5? There shall be no more curse. A curse came into this world in Genesis chapter 3. A little further down, you're going to find where God is speaking to Adam again. And he told Adam, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In this city over here, there's no more curse. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. And it says, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it. And from the sweat of thy face, in sorrow thou shalt eat in the sweat of thy face. And to dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. Here, here, have here death. Now, in the day that Adam ate thereof, how did he die? He lived, obviously, a long time after that, but he didn't die. He died three types of deaths. He died a natural corporal death hundreds of years later. He died, he's going to see where he's going to die to the enjoyment of the Garden of Eden because he's going to be driven from the Garden of Eden and not allowed to come back into the Garden of Eden, so he died to that. And he brought him himself and all humanity under the law of sin and death with that transgression. But there's not going to be any curse over here. You know why? Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 tell us, says, The Lord Jesus Christ has made a curse for us. He hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, having made a curse for us. For as it is written, Curses everyone that hangeth upon a tree. The Lord Jesus Christ went to the to Calvary. He hung upon a tree. 
And he redeemed us from the curse of the law of sin and death. Therefore, in this city, there's no more curse. We're still living under the, the curse of the land. Cursed is the land for thy sake. He, know, he said unto Eve, he said, In sorrow thou shalt conceive and bring forth children. And sorrow has been here ever since, hasn't it? Do we all have a little experience at least with some sorrow in life? I, I think we do. In sorrow thou shalt conceive and bring forth children. Adam, you're going to, in, the sorrow, in sorrow, you're going to eat of the, uh, of, the, of the ground that's been cursed. And so man's known sorrow ever since that particular time when all that took place. But again, there is no more curse over here. Revelation 21 and 4 is, is certainly one of my favorite verses. Here we find where the Apostle John says, And God said... <laughs> Anytime the Bible says, and God said, that puts just extra emphasis on it. Obviously, everything in the Word of God is something God said, had said. But it said, and God said, and he shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now, he told Adam he should eat the sweat of his face, right? Well, there's not, that, that's, that's, that's perspiration, one thing or another, covering his face, but there's not going to be any more tears. He said, there shall be no more sorrow. Remember, he said unto Eve, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. He said unto Adam, you're going to eat of this ground here in sorrow. But here it says, God shall wipe away all tears and there shall be no more sorrow. He says, this land, this earth that's cursed shall have thorns and thistles. Well, thorns can cause real bad pain. You ever been, <laughs> you ever grab a hold of a, a, a tree? There's a, uh, there's a tree that grows especially up in the eastern part uh, of Tennessee. I don't know what the name of the tree is, but it's got little thorns like that from top to bottom. And if you're ever walking in the woods and you want to reach out and grab a tree for stability, you better not grab that one. I know by experience, you better not grab that one. You'll let it go in a hurry. <laughs> you don't even hardly see them, but they're there. You, you, you'll let it go in a hurry. And I was over in the Bible land in 1999 and I saw some of those thorns. Remember, a, a crown of thorns was put upon the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. These were not little briars. I, I know what briars are. I used to fight briars as a boy growing up when I had to go down to the woods with my mother with a bucket and a hoe and pick blackberries. Had to deal with vines down there. Uh, uh, briars down there, rather. Those blackberry branches, one thing or another, they got briars on them. Is in this land we live in, it's got briars or thorns and thistles. Not briars, but thorns and thistles. That brings pain. But in Revelation 21, 4, there'll be no more pain. He's going to wipe all tears from your eyes. There's not going to be any more sorrow, any more pain, any more crying. And what do you tell Adam? And the dust thou art, and the dust thou shalt return. Revelation 21, 4 says there'll be no more death. Does that verse not summarize everything that we experience here in life? Pain, sorrow, crying, tears, and death? It's not going to be any more of that. <laughs> it's not going to be any more of that. In this city over here, it's going to be occupied by God's family. There's not going to be any sorrow, any pain, any tears, any death. That's why... I think Paul in Philippians 3, 20 and 21 
summed up what our attitude and outlook ought to be about? He said, for our conversation is in heaven. The word conversation means citizenship. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence we look for the Savior, who shall fashion our vile bodies like in his own glorious body. Now notice what he says there. Our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. From whence, from heaven, we what? We look for the Savior. We're looking for the Savior. Notice the expression Savior. He could have said from which we look for Jesus, from which we look for the Christ, when we look for the Lord. All that would have been right, wouldn't it? But he in particular called him Savior. What do you think about the Lord today? Oh, we think about the Lord being the God of all blessings, don't we? You know, Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Certainly that's true. But I like to think about him as a Savior. I like to think about him as being the Savior of my body, my soul, and my spirit. I like to think about him being my personal Savior, my individual Savior, who saved me from my sins that one day I can go and occupy a place I have citizenship in, a place called glory and a place called heaven. There shall be no more curse. There shall be no more darkness. There shall be no more night. There shall be no more pain. There shall be no more tears. There shall be no more death. No more sorrow. That's what it's all about over here in this city. This is a wonderful city, a glorious city. It's larger than any earthly city you've ever seen before. It's a city that God has prepared. God's a God of preparation. Brother Mike got us a new clock, but it's got a glass front and it's got a glare on it, so, okay, I'm in good shape. Anyway, (laughs) when you think of this city, you think of perfection, right? Everything's in place. Everything's in order. It's a city large enough to house the family of God. Go back to Revelation 21.3. When he says, and I saw this city come down as a, the holy city, New Jerusalem, as a bride prepared for her husband, and said, God shall dwell in this city. God shall dwell with them. He shall be their God, and they shall be his people. This city is an occupied city with the elect family of God. There'll be nothing needed here. And he says, and they shall serve him. There'll be nothing apart from that which is pure in this place. You know, let me go back. I, I, I forgot something about that. But when he said, I saw a pure river of water clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God, how everything that comes from God is pure. When you go back and read the tabernacle, about the tabernacle, beginning in Exodus chapter 25 to the end of the, cha- uh, end of the book, you're going to find everything in that tabernacle was made out of shining wood, overlaid with pure gold. Not just gold, pure gold. You'll also find in the tabernacle, the things that was used were always pure, pure myrrh, pure frankincense. in a sense. What were the three gifts that the wise men brought to where Jesus Christ was? Gold, myrrh, and frankincense, right? All that's used in the tabernacle. But it's pure gold, it's pure frankincense, it's pure myrrh, it's pure anointing oil, and on the table in the holy uh, first place called the, the holy place, you got a table, and on that table, uh, you got the uh, 12 loaves of, of bread there. You know what that table's called? It's called a pure table. Everything in that tabernacle was pure. 
and it was made out of shiny wood and overlaid with gold. This city I'm talking about up here is a pure city. It's a city of gold, and the streets of it are, are lined with gold. And I normally don't try to think about carnal things. I think about heaven. All right? And you don't need to do that either. Uh, but right here, we just it's, this is a picture of beauty. It's a picture of glory. In the Bible, gold is a picture of glory. In Psalm 68, 13, the writer tells us, though you've lain among the pots, that's L-I-E-N, though you've lain among the pots, showing man's depravity, it says she shall be like the wings of a dove, covered with silver, and her feathers with yellow gold. Yellow gold, pure gold. Gold's a picture of glory in God's word. You see, God is going to dwell with his people here. You're never going to be absent from God anymore. You're always going to be in the midst of God, in the presence of God. You're never going to be separated any way, fashion, or form ever, ever again in the city that I'm talking about. Throughout history, God has walked with his people. He walked in the Garden of Eden. He came down from heaven and dwelt uh, in the tabernacle uh, on, that whole, on the uh, Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, with the cherubims. He dwelt uh, and walked uh, in, the, in the temple. And in the New Testament day, in John 1, 14, we read where he says, and he, the word come at the Lord Jesus Christ and made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. There was glory in the tabernacle, glory in the temple, and there's glory in the Lord's church when the truth of God's sovereign grace is preached and proclaimed. Anything that's preached that does not give God 100% of the glory is impure and not the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Always just remember that. If it doesn't give God all the glory, if it's a combination of God and man, God doesn't get all the glory, does he? Man's got a little something in that. See, man wants a little glory. But I'm telling you, Ephesians 3 and 21 says, Unto him be glory in the church world without end throughout all generations. That's what it's all about. We sing the hymns of Zion. Those hymns are designed to give glory to God. When men pray from the depths of their heart, they're to pray giving glory to God. When the gospel preacher preaches, he's to preach in a manner of way that gives glory to God. I think so many times of John the Baptist. You know, when John came on the scene, they wanted to know who he was. Was he the Christ? He said, I'm not the Christ. He said, I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He said, I'm not worthy to unloose the shoe latches, the one that I'm talking to you about. The humility of John. I'm getting to this verse here where it says, John says, I must decrease that he might increase. Gospel preachers should never preach to bring attention to themselves. Should never preach, my friends, in any manner and way that brings glory to man. In the house of God, glory goes to God. The doctrine of God's everlasting love goes to God. The doctrine of God's unconditional election goes to God. God's glory, my friends, is at stake in the house of God. I'm telling you that now. The truth of God's word glorifies God, and that which is not truth does not do it. I must decrease, he might increase. How well John the Baptist could have said to those people on that occasion, oh, I'm not the Christ, but let me tell you who I really am. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness that Isaiah spoke about and Malachi spoke about. I left for joy in my mother's womb, the salutation of Mary. I baptized a lot of people down in the River Jordan. I even baptized the Son of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ down there. And I pointed him out to everybody. I said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He say any of that? No, he didn't say one thing like that. 
He said, I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose the shoe latches of his shoes. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. And I rejoice just standing by the side of the bridegroom to hear his voice. I tell you what, I think I could have just hugged John the Baptist, don't you? I, I think if, I, if I'd lived that day and seen John, I'd just want to wrap my arms around him and give him a tight squeeze and hug him for being the man he was to show forth such great humility when God had bestowed such great honor upon this man. And yet we see how he says, I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose the shoe lashes of his shoes. This city over here is a wonderful and glorious city, is it not? <laughs> no more curse. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more crying. No more death. No more darkness, no more night. Why is all that? Because the glory of God in the light of his son, Jesus Christ, will be all the light that is needed. You know something else that's not there? No temple is there. In the natural city of Jerusalem, uh, there was a temple there. That's where they went. That was the place of worship. You know why there's no temple over here? Because God fills it all. God's presence just fills the entire city. And it's a pretty big city, right? I've already told you, it's four square reaching from here to the border of their state of Arizona four different ways. 216 foot high. Those gates, those walls represent the 12 tribes of Israel and also the 12 apostles, the 12 foundations tie the Old Testament and New Testament together. That means God had a people, brother, in the Old Testament day. He's got a people in the New Testament day. God's had a people in every nation, kindred, and tongue, a people on the face of this earth. Now, I want to close this morning, sometime or another. But anyway, <laughs> no guarantees when it will be. Anyway, uh, I want to go back there to that third chapter in Genesis one more time to mention something I mentioned last Sunday, but I want to go back and re uh, look at it again. When God came on the scene and he spoke to Adam, he spoke to Eve, he spoke to the serpent, you know what they had done prior to him coming on the scene? When they transgressed God's law, they were naked, and now they were shameful about it. Before the, uh, before the transgression, they were not. But they are now, because lust has come into the world. Carnal thinking, carnal desires, carnal emotions come into the world. They take fig leaves to cover themselves with. They make an effort to cover up. Man's great at cover-ups, right? <laughs> Man's great at cover-ups, especially in a place called Washington, D.C. Man's great with cover-ups. Cover up this, cover up that. Pass the buck, pass the buck, pass the buck. With fig leaves. Didn't work, did it? So God comes along, and he slays some animals. He takes animals, which when he slew the animals, that means death took place, blood was shed. He took the skin of those animals, and he clothed Adam and Eve. I want to ask you this question. What did Adam and Eve do to help the Lord do that? What did Adam and Eve do when God clothed them with the skins? They were totally passive in that. They did nothing. What did Adam do, by the way, to receive natural life? You know, life comes from life. You know that, right? That's basic <laughs> common knowledge, understand. Life comes from life. Adam was created from the dust of the earth. 
And I believe uh, everything about him uh, that, you know, had been created, uh, all the, on the inside, all the, all the systems that go on on the inside of us was there. But one vital thing was missing called life. And God breathed his nostrils the breath of life. And he became a living soul. I asked the question, what did Adam do to get that life? What did Adam do to obtain that life? Not one thing. He was totally passive in it. What did Adam and Eve do in order to be clothed with those skins? Not one thing. They were totally passive in it. God clothed them. It's a picture of our redemption. A redeemer had to come into this world and redeem, had to shed his blood. Payment had to be made. So we come to Revelation chapter 5. And there's a book there, sealed with seven seals. And John, the, uh, the apostle John wept because no man was found worthy to loose those seven seals. But then the angel said to John, Weep not, for the line of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed to loose the seals of the book. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what they said about him. Said, Thou art worthy, O Lamb, to loose the seals of the book, for thou hast redeemed us by thy blood out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people in the face of this earth. Notice, out of every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people. Thou art worthy, O Lamb. He was worthy when the angel spoke it to John. He's been worthy for 2,000 years. He's still worthy today, is he not? He's the one who shed his blood, redeemed us, justified us, reconciled us, paid the sin debt, became a propitiation for our sins, clothed us just like he did with Adam Eve with the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you read Genesis especially those first three chapters or so. Read Revelation 21 and 2. And we'll see the contrast in these two chapters. Man was banished from the garden. God drove him out of the garden. And he put cherubims there to protect it and a flaming sword that turned in every way. But over here in this city... We have total access to this city and to the tree of life over here. Total access. We're not banished over here. It's, it's open. The Lord's people have full access to all the benefits of this city that I'm talking about here this morning. That awaits a child of God. That awaits all the family of God. I look forward to that city, don't you? This is a city that Abraham looked for. Hebrews chapter 11 says, And by faith Abraham looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You think he was talking about an earthly city? He wasn't talking about an earthly city. Abraham wasn't looking for an earthly city. One earthly city is just like another. You know, people rave about New York City, the Big Apple. I've always thought New York City was the Bad Apple. The rotten apple. Uh, I've, been, I've been to New York City. I went through Chicago one time on the way up to Wisconsin for the, for the constitution of a church. We went around Chicago. We used good sense going up, going around it. We decided to come back through it. Come all the way back through Chicago. Got on the south side of Chicago. Somebody said, Brother Lawrence, what did you like the most about Chicago? I said, when I saw it in my rearview mirror. <laughs> anyway, 
Uh, what do you got, Brother Junior? 154. 154. 154. That wouldn't be amazing grace, would it? <laughs>